let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, 2023 is off to a grim start on the crime front, most recently with the shooting of 13-year-old Karan Blake on Saturday morning. I'm here with audio producer Julia Karen and The Washington Post's Michael Bryce Sadler to talk about that the mayor's new economic plan, and our dream versions of the Nats racing president's mascots. Today is Friday, January 13th, 2023. I'm David Plotz, in for Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. January is already a sad and deadly month here in the city. There were six homicides in the first nine days of the month, including two of children. And Washington has been gripped by the killing of a 13-year-old, Karan Blake. Blake was shot on Saturday, reportedly by someone who saw Blake breaking into cars in his neighborhood. The shooter is reportedly a D.C. government employee, and he fired a legally registered weapon, but his name has not been released, and the police have not announced an arrest which has led to complaints from council members and public outrage. On Wednesday, hundreds gathered to protest the police response to Blake's killing. And on Tuesday, Police Chief Robert Conti passionately rebuked critics who said the police are taking too much time. He, Conti said, we've got to make sure we get this right. People are rushing to judgment. There's been too much misinformation swirling around this incident. Too many people have made assumptions about this case, and it is unfair to the grieving family. Spreading of inaccurate information is dangerous, reckless, and has the potential to adversely impact the investigation and the relationships in our community. Julia, why has Karan Blake's killing prompted so much anger and concern? It's, I mean, this is a city where homicide is common and where the death of children in homicide is all too common. Why do you think this this death in particular has been so remarkable? I think partially the timing of it. Like when we think about New Year resolutions, we think about like we're going to move forward. We're going to evolve. We're going to put everything that we thought was maybe bad or, you know, something we did wrong in the past and we're going to advance. I think that's part of it. I think part of maybe DC's resolutions for the year was right? Drive crime down. But on top of that, I think it's also a kid. And when you're talking about children and the death of children, I think people see someone whose entire life is ahead of them. And to have that cut short, especially in a DC where we know crime has gone up, I think people are really scared that, oh my God, this could be my kid. Something needs to happen because we can't let this continue. Yeah. I mean, I think that this, the issue with the children and homicide in D.C. is so terrible. We had 16 children killed in 2022, which is way up from 2021. And almost more sad is the fact that more than 200 
children were arrested, I think, for involvement in violent crimes. Michael, when you look around the city, why do you think it is that we have this acceleration of children being victims of violence and being involved in violence in ways that we haven't seen for years? David, the problem with youth violence in BC is probably the most vexing issue for city leaders. Right now, it was last year, and thus far this year, it's pretty clear, as Julie alluded to, this problem isn't going away just because of the turn of the calendar. When you look at the pandemic and the effect that that had on children in schools, socially, nationwide, we've seen an acceleration in youth violence. So the district isn't unique in that respect. Uh, but what we're left with is figuring out this billion dollar question of how do we get this under control? And that's where you start to see a lot of the divides and perspectives around how to solve it. But certainly when you look at the causes, uh, a lot of people tend to point to the pandemic and say things changed for children, how they learned, how they developed, how they socialized, and a lot more time maybe not being physically in a school or doing a social activity after school. And what you're seeing from city leaders is calls to find more programming and things to occupy children in productive ways so they're not taking to the streets in their spare time. Yeah, Michael, I think that's such a clear explanation of that. I mean, there were so many community and social structures that existed for children in D.C. before the pandemic. Not not that D.C. was a some kind of Eden for children before the pandemic. It certainly right. wasn't. But there were after school programs. Teachers were more engaged. Children were more they were the habits of being at school, around school. Uh, and parents just had a clearer idea about where their children were at particular times. And to break all of that up and to not fully restore it has just left children in a state of, of chaos. Everything has become more chaotic post-pandemic and it's more chaotic for kids and it's become deadly for children as a result. Michael, when you cover the city, obviously, as a reporter, do you get the sense that this is, in fact, something that preoccupies city leaders? 100%. It's the death of a child is always going to be something that, that grips the community. You mentioned some of the data points of children being shot and killed and being involved in violent crimes and that increasing despite everyone being on the same page of this is bad, we need to do something about it. It's the conflict there has, violence in DC has always been a problem and it likely will continue to be a problem in the foreseeable future. But when you have kids who are the victims and the perpetrators of that violence, it gets more complicated and more sensitive, especially in this case, your first question was about what makes this case unique. You know, you have an absence of information in terms of who specifically did this that you don't often see. And a lot of people are confused about why information is being shared in the way it is. You have council members and activists asking for accountability for this person who shot Karan, a name and identification. Why weren't they arrested? Asking these types of questions and unable to really get answers beyond you have to let the investigation play out and you have to let this process play out from authorities. So it is unique in that respect as well, because a lot of times, you know, MPD is pretty clear in stating what they know to the fullest extent. And what we're getting right now is we know this person is a government employee and that's that's about it. So um, we'll see what happens. But that has been unusual as well. And also adding complexity to it is the are the reports that the shooter saw Karan Blake 
breaking into cars. And there was a, it's a form of vigilantism, which sometimes people are very sympathetic to vigilantes. Sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, you've got to preserve safety and security in your neighborhood. And then, but then you have a situation like this where if the reports are true and this is what Karan Blake was doing, there's no, there can be no justification for responding to, even to property crime, even to property crime that affects you with this level of violence. And it's just complicated. There's no simplicity here. And you can understand why there's so much frustration. There's frustration from people who are upset about the amount of crime and property crime in the city. There's frustration about the dangers to children. There's frustrations about the police response. There's frustrations about the kind of lack of communication from prosecutors and the police. And it's a kind of perfect amalgamation of things can go wrong. And it's no surprise that we accelerate here. Julia, are there any positive signs that you see? Anything to feel hopeful about as it relates to violence in the city? Short answer is, I mean, I don't know, right? Chief Conti and his presser basically said, if you see something, please just call the police. Please just let us handle it. Don't try to pull the vigilante justice card that you were talking about, right? Leave it to the professionals. And hopefully that is something that MPD takes seriously. And hopefully, you know, more people will try to call the police if they see a carjacking or some form of nonviolent or violent crime. But again, I think if you're scared potentially of police presence in your neighborhood, you have to try and find a way to build inroads in those communities and say, hey, like we are here to help. Please call us if you see something dangerous. We don't want you to get hurt. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. Let's move on to the next topic. I am old enough that when I hear five-year plan, I think Stalin ordering the Soviet Union to triple its output of tractors. But <laughs> comes news this week to me, news to me, that D.C. has its own five-year plan, a five-year economic growth plan, and Mayor Bowser unveiled it this week. What stood out to you, Michael, when you were looking at this plan? It seems like there is a lot that the mayor wants to accomplish by early 2028. I mean, there's a lot here. 
in the economic plan. And then when she was uh, sworn in just over a week ago, she had a whole nother set of goals that were also pretty ambitious. So it's been interesting to see. I mean, you look at some of the goals that she laid out this week. She wants to boost the city's population. She wants to increase equity, especially east of the Anacostia River, ensuring that residents are able to live within a mile of a grocery store. Obviously, affordable housing goals are always going to be there. Um, And then you have some ones that are interesting as it pertains to raising the Black median household income up to at least 78,000 from where it's currently at at 53,000, helping minority-owned businesses become more successful. I'm not exactly sure how how a mayor does that, but it, it is a goal she set for herself, and we'll have to look back in 2028 and see how much of these she she accomplished in her third term. But I was surprised to see her continue to set these benchmarks for herself after even last week just announcing this big plan to increase the downtown population by 15,000 residents. So the last strategy in 2017, the last five-year plan, it just had two components, really. It was to raise the private sector GDP to $100 billion, which they did, which we did, and to bring unemployment levels below 10% in all wards, races, and education levels, which they kind they were on the way. The pandemic messed with it. Seems like they didn't meet it. But this is a really vast, as Michael was saying, Julia, this is like a vast array of things that the mayor wants to do. What do you think is the point of setting these grand goals make it more or less likely that you achieve them? I think laying out clear directions of like, this is the pinnacle of what we think we can do is good for people. It hopefully motivates them to hit those benchmarks. Obviously, like I imagine because it's government and things tend to move slowly in government, you're not going to get quite all the way there. But even if you get 50% of the way to that benchmark, like that is progress and it's small and, you know, people don't see it as a big win. But I think sometimes, you know, Small wins are better than no wins. One of the ones that I really was struck by is that the mayor is is intent on maintaining young people, such as you guys. (laughs) She wants to stop you from leaving the city. You've been leaving at pretty high rates. Why is that? Why do you two think your peers are leaving the city and what might make them stay in the city? We talked about this a bit in the Quran Blake segment, but the pandemic messed a lot of things up. And part of what it messed up, at least for downtown, is downtown is a lot of office buildings. People commute into the city specifically to go to work. Yes, there are residential neighborhoods and stuff like that, but it is expensive to live in some of those residential neighborhoods, especially if you are in this demographic of 20 to 34 years old. You're just graduating from college. You've got your first entry-level job. You're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and maybe you're like not living, you know, (laughs) at Mount Vernon Triangle or somewhere like really, really expensive. And so one of the things that I hope Mayor Bowser does is in a way to try and have some of that retention is because people are teleworking more often. You could convert some of those business buildings into housing of some flavor. I know I've seen reports floating around that New York City is going to try to do that. I do wonder if DC is going to have a similar kind of investment. That's definitely going to be a big goal for, I would say, both Mayor Bowser's administration as well as the council in the coming years. This Office to housing conversion has been something that's talked about even before the pandemic, just as the solution to the city's affordable housing crisis, which you know, David, there's not enough reasonably priced places to live in this city. So the discussion about changing office buildings that are no longer being used because more people are teleworking into that housing that people are after 
is very logical. But there are so many challenges to building housing in these old vacant office buildings that I don't think everyone fully thinks about when they talk about these types of proposals. Like you look at some of these office buildings, you only have windows in certain areas of like plumbing, all types of things you have to consider that you might take for granted in an average apartment or home. Like you have to really revamp an office building to accommodate a home. So that's going to be a big challenge for the city, not to mention some of these buildings are federally owned. So Mayor Bowser is asking for the Biden administration to play ball in letting the city reimagine how to use these buildings that are more unoccupied now than they were a few years ago. I will be curious to see as these come into fruition, and I do believe they will, how much these buildings need to change from what they looked like as offices. Like, Because in some cases, I've heard at least that there's an argument to me, well, it's cheaper to just tear the whole thing down and build it from the ground up rather than literally reconstitute the entire building's plumbing system to accommodate a new way of using it. All right, before we move on, last question to you, Michael. When you look at the goals in the five-year plan, what do you think we're going to have the hardest time hitting? I don't know about the plan to boost the median income for Black residents. I just, I think there are a lot of factors, obviously, that go into something like that going up to that degree. So I think that could be challenging, and I'm excited to cover the mayor's plans on achieving that goal over the next few years. And then people are leaving the city, and they left the city during the pandemic. So not only do you want to grow the population to 725,000, which we're a little bit under 700,000 right now, but I think that's going to be a challenge. I think you need to really incentivize people to live downtown in ways that I don't fully see a lot of incentive right now to be downtown and live downtown. I think a lot of people would agree it's a little bit of a wasteland on a lot of days. So the city needs to be creative in figuring out how are we going to not just get people to get back to working downtown and leasing office downtown, but you're going to spend potentially your whole life, most of your days in the city's downtown corridor. And we're asking 15,000 new residents to do that. I'm really curious how they're going to pull that off. I'm just in closing, I, one way to raise the median income of black residents, and I'm sure I'm not the only person this has a, occurred to or has noted this kind of grimly, is to continue to encourage poor black Washingtonians to become Marylanders by pricing mm-hmm. them out of neighborhoods, that you can raise the median income of a population by getting fewer of the poor res poor people in that population to live there. I don't think that's an intentional DC strategy, but I do think it is a byproduct of a strategy to promote growth and development and all these nice fancy apartments. Like you end up causing certain people who tend to be poorer to leave and that raises the overall median income. Let us move on to a less urgent but speedier question. There's big news, Julia Karen. The big Hmm. news is the Nats are inviting people to apply to be a racing president down in spring training at Palm Beach. You've got to be 5'9 to 6'3. You've got to be able to run from center field to first base in a 60-pound costume and and properly function while wearing a 60-pound costume. And, of course, you have to be able to embody one of the presidents. So Teddy Roosevelt, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, or George Washington. So can you do it, Julia Karen? (laughs) I mean, if you're the one who's sending me down there to spring training, I'm all on board. I would happily take CityCast to Miami, to Palm Beach, to be a racing president. Unfortunately, 
this is like one of those roller coasters where you are not tall enough to ride the ride. Mm. I am five foot two, five foot three. I do not hit the height requirement benchmark, oh. unfortunately. I know, I know. That's the only thing that's holding me back in this regard. Could I wear a 60 pound costume? I sure as heck would try. Could I function properly? You bet I would try to give it my best effort. Could I embody a president? Well, if there's a president that was 5'2", you bet I would do James my Madison. darndest. James Madison, 5'4". James five, Madison? Four. Really? Yes. Very short president. There is hope for the short people, the short kings <laughs> among us. Short king spring. Nats, you got to integrate that into your president pitch. Come on. Michael, are you in the 5'9", to 5'6", uh, window there? Well, I am, and it's taken me back to my days of using uh, dating apps. <laughs> Looking <laughs> like right in the in the height range, I do have questions about the phrase "properly function." I don't know what that <laughs> means, but I can infer, and I I don't know if I could properly function wearing a sixty pound costume. I've not tried. I do think I could run from center field to first base, and I think I I'm pretty fast, so I'm not too worried about that. And then embody the president. Aren't you already embodying the president by mm. being in their body? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. That's fair. All right. So this is just for spring training. So we would hope that whoever did this got called up to the big time here in D.C. But I think this should prompt us to reexamine the racing presidents. These are the Mount Rushmore presidents. Previously, the Nats did have Taft and Coolidge and Hoover, who are three mediocre presidents. But there are so many historically great figures with ties to Washington who could really run. And the Frederick Douglass House has sight lines to the stadium. Could there be a Frederick Douglass racing, not a racing president, but a racing, you know, statesman? Who else would you guys sub out? I think we should sub out presidents. I think it's a tiresome thing. It just gives you white guys. Let's get some variety in there. I would love to see someone get into a Duke Ellington costume and like sprint that or like play a musical instrument or try to sing. I think that would be a fabulous embodiment of a guy who is, for all intents and purposes, the figure for some of us when we think of D.C. I want a Duke Ellington costume. Nationals, please make it happen. Duke Ellington, 2023. Let's go. Michael, anybody you'd want? I love the Duke proposal. That's awesome. Julia makes me think like this. When you go to a baseball game and you see these presidents race, especially you're a little kid, it is a chance to learn. It is a chance to ask questions about who are these people. So why not? change yep. it up once in a while. I mean, <clears throat> it's probably not cheap to produce these 60-pound costumes. I don't know that for sure, but sure, let's throw in a Duke Ellington. Let's use other historical figures in the city's context or, I guess, in the country's history. There's so many creative people to choose from to have fun with this. We don't need to see the same for yeah. as the old white guys running around. We've seen that. It's been done. Let's change it up. As long as they let Teddy win occasionally, I think we'll be okay with some changes. <laughs> I think you, if you're going to have a Roosevelt, have Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm, Love to have Eleanor call. Roosevelt. Harriet Tubman, history of being a great, she could run. She was an incredible athlete. She was like this amazing physical presence. She's not a D.C. person, but she's got close ties to the city. Why is there no Harriet Tubman? Or just refresh the presidents also. Bring in some people who are newer, maybe like an Obama president would be pretty cool to see. Just like, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen George. I've seen them all. Let's let's change it up. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. Michael Bryce Sadler of The Washington Post. Thank you for being here. Always great to be on. And Julia Karen, what a delight to see you. Delight to see you too. 
I am CityCast CEO David Plotz. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and Michael Schaefer. Our music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Tell a racing president. Rate the show. Leave us a review. Subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye.